Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're ready. Qatar is ready. We've been planning for this for 12 years now, so final touches Obviously, with any mega event like this, or any event actually that you put in place, there's always the last minute rush, but on a whole, in general, we're, we're ready. We're at the Halifa Stadium, the venue for England's very first World Cup game. We look at the changing rooms, which have been refurbished as part of the stadium's renovations for the World Cup to make it fit FIFA criteria. Uh, this is where the players will get ready to head out for their first game at the World Cup. It's all branded up with for branding the, the dressing room area itself where the players will sit and hold their team talks and get ready uh, is, looks, looks smart has a it looks like any other fairly standard football dressing room but this will be no ordinary football match the day a World Cup starts you wake up with that slight flutter in your belly you eye up the wall chart waiting for you your team's route to the final mapped out you think of weeks ahead where football will be at your fingertips all day, every day, and even people who never chat about it will want to. For many people, this tournament won't be stirring the same feelings this morning, particularly because the country where it's being hosted in the 21st century would see them as a criminal. Being gay is illegal in Qatar. 
Earlier this year, one of the men in charge of security at the tournament, Major General Abdulaziz Abdullah Al-Ansari, warned that rainbow flags may be taken from fans for their own protection. In October, Nasser Al-Qatar, head of the World Cup's Supreme Committee, declared in an interview with Sky that everyone will feel safe here. Everybody will feel safe when they come to Qatar. Would that include, say, Everybody. gay fans if they were holding hands in public? Would that be OK? Yes. We tried to ask a member of the Supreme Committee ourselves at Khalifa Stadium, the stadium's project manager, in fact, but we didn't get very far. The British uh, fans that in Khalifa, they will, they will go through a very nice experience, especially with this uh, beautiful uh, layout of Khalifa. I'm speaking also of people of different identities. You know what I mean? Identity. Like, for example, people at that point, six weeks away from the World Cup, there was still no official tournament-wide statement on the subject. But no matter what the Supreme Committee says about the experience for fans this month, just like David Beckham advertising Qatar as a great place to chill between your next flight, World Cup fans and media will be in transit for a month. The experience for LGBTQ plus people in the country right now, people who'll still be there when the media circus moves on, is what will stand the test of time. What will happen to them? There's this like really deep sense of frustration and anger. And and I think the root of that is seeing people worried so much about gay fans when they're where they have been safe before the World Cup and will continue to be safe post the World Cup while they're in danger and they're likely to be even in more danger post the World Cup. And why are they missing from that conversation? In this, our third episode, we turn to the legacy of this World Cup and what happens next for the people who remain. The big question is, what's going to happen after the World Cup? What's going to happen when that spotlight moves on? Who are the citizens of this place? Who is this place for? I just pray that everything works out well. I'm Kate Mason, and this is the third and final episode of Inside the Qatar World Cup. I needed to speak to someone from the LGBTQ plus community who had lived in Qatar and who had lived that reality. There is just one Qatari who's ever come out gay publicly, Dr. Nasser Mohammed. They are also non-binary. You know, I've been in touch with a lot of people since coming out back at home that I didn't even know because I was the only like publicly out person. Training in sports medicine, Dr. Naz had ambitions of working with injured players at this World Cup, perhaps in Aspatar the sports medicine hospital next to the Aspire Academy. But in 2015, having grown up in Qatar their whole life, they came out and sought asylum in the United States, where they still live today. To me, in my own value system, that was a lot more important than having relationships that are not authentic, because I didn't feel I could build authentic relationships without being my full authentic self. 
While the conversation about fans from all over the world, fans of all sexuality, potentially coming to a place where they are literally classified as criminals is hugely important, Dr. Naz explains that this often misses the point. The truth is LGBT Qataris are not okay in Qatar and the PR and marketing around the FIFA World Cup should not be the only frame of reference for the country conditions for LGBT Qataris. Dr. Naz's story illustrates that. If there's not a conversation about this, about being gay as like a possibility within your culture or within Qatari society, how did that work for you when you were first figuring out, you know, your feelings? All that I was experiencing as a young adolescent child was just the biology of it, right? Like I was just, couldn't, I mean, I, I know that my siblings got into arranged marriages and I just knew my body that that's something I couldn't do, but I couldn't name it. Then in high school, it's when I started hearing from my friends about them trying to meet guys on online chat rooms and how that went pretty bad. Um, some were caught, a lot of them were caught by undercover cops that were like on these online chat rooms. Um, and the ones that were not Qatari were deported from the country. Um, some got detention, some got physically abused. So it, it was like I was hearing these stories and I was really frightened to step out of line, right? Because I've been hearing about what happens to people. Yeah, and that's when, you know, like during my travels to the States is when I really had, had to confront that I am gay and that I'm not okay. According to Dr. Naz, there are many, many layers to Qatar's anti-homosexuality laws, which involve some of the country's most important institutions. In Qatar's military, for example, there is state-mandated conversion therapy. The Doha Family Institute, run by Qatar Foundation, whose head, Sheikh Hamosa, you may remember from episode one, regularly share anti-LGBT videos. And one instructor at the Aspire Academy has a whole video series about combating homosexuality. There is also a section of law enforcement called the Preventative Security Department. What Dr. Naz tells me next is difficult to hear. The Preventative Security Department are like pretty close to morality police, basically, that a lot of people have. And these are the guys that are completely flying under the radar. They go undercover, they take referrals from people from traffic signs or airport checkpoints, and they disappear people. They don't arrest them, they quite literally kidnap them. So I, like people that were kidnapped had their families look for them for days in the hospitals and local police stations and couldn't find them. They had a tower in El Dafna region where they have dungeons underground, where they were kept there for weeks to months at a time. They were severely physically abused. They were beaten daily. I have seen the victims' scars on photos and video footage. They torture them there for weeks to months and mentally break them and then subject them to forced conversion therapy in these dungeons and then threaten them and their families and threaten retaliation if this is out. And, you know, when I heard one story prior to coming out, I thought it was extreme and maybe it was a one-off and maybe something else has happened because it's one story. 
but then I got the second and the third and the fourth and I have a lot of them now and it is really 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 awful and that is something that's happening to the LGBT community in Qatar. We've been told that one of these conversion centres is less than a mile away from the Lucille iconic stadium, the venue for the final of the World Cup. Is this a trivial question? Why, what, you talk about this unit of the police, like what, what, why? Why is this so, what is the obsession with this? This is insane. I think it's about control and then like people being themselves and having like variations and things like that kind of gives a sense of loss of that control. I mean, these are my assumptions, but like that's what it almost feels like. Everybody will feel safe when they come to Qatar. Welcome world banners are everywhere in Doha. This month, for the first time, international media will be allowed to film and take photos in tourist locations and open spaces in Doha without a permit, including, but not limited to, Aspire, Albida Fan Park, West Bay and the Corniche. And yet this week, the internet was flooded with images of a Danish TV broadcast being interrupted by Qatar officials who demanded they stop filming live on air. In the footage, a Qatar official grabs the camera and starts covering the lens with his hand. And as the Danish journalist asks... Why can't we film? It's a public place. We can film with this permit. This is the upgrade, pass, and this is the uh, accreditation. We can film anywhere we want. In 2015, there was huge controversy when the BBC's Middle East correspondent, Mark Lobel, was arrested by Qatar police. He'd been invited for a guided tour of new workers' accommodation in the country. But after a mechanic invited him personally into his house, police, who'd been following him since his arrival, moved in and detained him and his crew on the grounds of trespassing on private property. When we got in touch with him to reflect on the whole experience... One thing he said stuck out. They just are very, very nervous in Qatar about any coverage that they don't control. And yet they're hosting this incredible event where you know, the world's media uh, will be there covering it. That word again, control. I have colleagues who worked in the two English newspapers at that point who were constantly being harassed by the officials because... A story that seemed important enough to be told, not really controversial, would still upset them. Vani Saraswati was a key part of written media in Qatar for almost 20 years. She saw a whole range of media restrictions during her time in the country. When she wrote for print publications abroad, for example, she was able to push the boundaries a little. Some of it came online, but because it was in print, especially when I was covering child jockeys, I could still do it. I could still write it and not draw attention to myself in Qatar, because, you know, it's not out there. But it was English language media that was always controlled most tightly, particularly content on the internet, content that was out there. We're seeing a new version of this right now, in fact. Fans are being paid to go to Qatar and say positive things on social media about their experience of the tournament. So you had these things where there was direct censorship, where either the editor was called and asked not to print certain things, or there was other intimidation in place. The visa wouldn't be renewed. When it, when it was time for your visa to be renewed, it just wouldn't be, and you would have to like pack up and leave. In the mid-1990s, the Qatar government launched Al Jazeera, 
It was hailed as the first independent news channel in the Arab world, and it was responsible for some truly groundbreaking reporting, winning internationally respected awards for their work on stories from Libya to Lockerbie. Qatar established itself as a media hub in the Middle East, covering football too, through its sports arm, BN Sports. Pomp, circumstance, ceremony, all on display at the Parc des Princes. What a showdown this one is. But this media revolution concealed a different reality for journalists wanting to report on stories in Qatar. The same critical coverage of Qatar was conspicuous by its absence on Al Jazeera. Here, a subtle but powerful form of censorship ruled. At a point when you had Al Jazeera in Doha, you also had local media that was so controlled that had absolutely no freedom to report on anything. And both of that existed in the same space. Now, a lot of the journalists are migrants themselves. They're coming from countries where either they're not being paid well enough or whatever, they may have the skills. Uh, Most of them did have the skills, but they were still working in this environment. They had to protect their interests. In 2009, a local news portal emerged that became a genuine alternative to the country's scripted censorship, Doha News. Set up by American journalists. So they received a kind of protection and they had the years of those who could give them guidance. And this was something that journalists in the newspaper struggled with because nobody was listening to them, right? Nobody was telling them, we will protect you, go ahead and do your job, because they were just seen as Asians working there. Doha News mapped the country's growth, its labour rights problems and all the issues on the ground with the World Cup. But then, in 2016, the website came to an abrupt halt. They banned it in Qatar, so you couldn't read it if you were in Qatar without VPN, so they had to wind up and leave. There was, and still has been, no explanation. The two editors, husband and wife team Omar and Shabina, were in Detroit at the time when the website was blocked because of licensing issues. In the summer of 2016, Doha News had published a guest piece written by a Qatari male, identified only as Majid. He described the challenges of being gay in the country. I have become fearful of people knowing about me, he wrote. We are seen as fair game. Three days after, the website published a reply by another Qatari guest author. We do not tolerate homosexuality in Qatar, the title read. They explained their belief that homosexuality is something psychological and that it should be medically treated, and added that some people do it because they want to adhere to a Western trend. These are uh, Muslim countries. They have a very different cultural starting point for us. I think it's important when you're a visitor to a country that you respect the culture of your host nation. We do talk to them. A few weeks ago, UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly called for gay football fans to show respect to Qatar and the country's values when attending the World Cup. Satirists best expressed the absurdity. All we are saying to LGBTQ plus fans going out to the World Cup is... Be gay and be proud, but don't be too gay. Don't be too gay. Don't be too gay. Look, look mm. the, the, the British have a long tradition of being respectful of other cultures. Yeah. It's why we're so loved internationally. How gay is too gay? What is, what is too gay for a well, gay person? I, it's not an exact science, but take your overall gayness mm. as you are in the UK mm. and then halve it when you're over there. That, yeah. I'm thinking that should be acceptable. Uh, or better still, don't be gay at all. 
Cleverly was essentially expressing the argument that the West cannot force its social values upon Qatar because, well, that would be a kind of intolerance as well. Qatar and the Supreme Committee have been deploying this argument for a long time, but it's become front and centre in the past few weeks leading up to the tournament. You heard from Nasser al-Qatar at the start of the episode speaking to Sky. In that same interview, he said that criticism of Qatar and this World Cup was possibly racially motivated. Barney sort of echoed this sentiment. She wants the stories of workers and many others in this country to be told. She's told many herself, but in the right way. That sometimes hasn't happened. And she's bang on about how Qatar's restrictive approach has, in many cases, backfired on the country. What Qatar didn't realise is a lot of this could have been countered or managed if it had allowed for free media within. If you had good media reporting from within your country, then you also had those experts informing reports outside, right? But then you didn't allow it. And then you had someone with a British passport or a Dutch passport, American passport, who could enter your country, who didn't necessarily speak the language of the workers, who saw it from a Western lens and reported what they saw. And it wasn't inaccurate. But I think the tone is problematic. Today, going into the first ever World Cup in the Middle East, I'm finding it useful to reflect on this. Throughout this series, I've tried to understand what my perspective as someone from the UK, as someone with my background who lived in Doha, might make me miss or get wrong. That's part of the challenge of making this series. But Dr Naz left me with an important message. Being aware of that doesn't mean compromising on values that are universal. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologising for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. Like really celebrating something like the World Cup should not be done in the narrow view of one culture or one religion or one region, regardless of where that is. It's a celebration of diversity, right? And that's not like what's going on now, right? There's like, even the officials are like, you need to respect our culture and religion. Then, then don't, don't invite the world there. It's really helpful you saying that because I don't, you know, I don't really feel like I have the right to say that. The issues around xenophobia and Islamophobia have come up, right? And when somebody is xenophobic or is Islamophobic, you'll really pick on that up really quickly because they would be having a major confirmation bias moment. It's like, oh, we knew Muslims are awful. We knew Arabs are awful. And this is not helping anybody because this is just a different shade of hate, whatever that hate you're coming with, and it's not going to be helping anybody. However, with that being said, abuse and human rights violations don't belong inherently in any culture or any religion. So assuming that they do inherently exist in Qatar is xenophobic and Islamophobic. And we should be having these conversations. Everybody should be held equally accountable for human rights violations. And I don't think we should be avoiding um, these conversations just because we're from different cultural backgrounds or different religions. We should all be having these conversations together. 
three weeks before the start of the tournament, more than a dozen buildings which housed thousands of mainly Asian and African workers were evacuated and shut down by authorities. Given two hours' notice, some were cast out on the street. The buildings were in central Doha, some in the Al-Mansura district. It's a few kilometres back from the Corniche, where many fans and media will be spending their time during the World Cup. In the summer... Journalist Pete Patterson went to the Corniche. Yeah, so I spoke to a lot of workers who had been brought into Qatar to revamp the Corniche. Those he spoke to had all paid high recruitment fees on the understanding that they would be here for two years, enough time to recoup their debts. However, because this was a special project that needed to be finished before the World Cup, as soon as the work started to wind up, they started to be sent home, in many cases long before the two years was up, and in some cases before they'd been able to repay those recruitment fees. And so they were, in fact, going home saying, we're we're going to be jobless and we're going to be in debt. And they were very clear that that was linked to the World Cup. There was no doubt about it. Lots of construction projects will have been finished in time for the World Cup and on the glittering Corniche, most of all. But some workers were being sent home not just before the end of their contracts, but before they were even paid at all. I met some workers who were in similar circumstances in Nepal, and you know they said the World Cup doesn't benefit us; it's just benefiting the companies and the government. And so, you know, people talk about the World Cup leaving a lasting legacy of better workers' rights. In some instances, it may do, but in this particular instance, it seemed to it seems to have actually compounded the problems that low wage workers face. A Qatari government official said the evictions last month were unrelated to the World Cup and were in line with ongoing comprehensive and long-term plans to reorganise areas of Doha. The the question is, after the World Cup, what will happen? That's what everyone is asking right now. After the World Cup, what's going to happen next? I'm reunited with another friend from my days in Doha in a coffee shop. I'm going to call her Zaina. She's Lebanese, but she's lived in Qatar for 10 years. Are they going to... I don't know. We never know. We should wait and see. What do you think? Do you have... What do you think? I don't know, really. I don't know what they think. Of course they want to cut... Make cut, you know, Make redundancies or... Yes. Yeah. That's normal. I don't know how it will affect us. We used to talk about the future a lot, what we were going to do next with our lives. Even then, Zaina felt the pull of Lebanon particularly strongly. I wanted to understand what has kept her here. Her answer makes the narrative around Qatar even more deeply complicated. Lots of people come here to try and earn better than they would mm. in their home country. Mm. That's true from Europe yeah. to Lebanon as well, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. But the good thing here is that it's safe. So as if you are, okay, you are getting a good salary, you are putting it all here in Qatar. But in return, you are, going, you are getting safety. For example, Lebanon, there is no safety. Right. There is no yeah, accessibility to electricity, water, everything, the essentials in life. So that's why, even if you're not going to save anything, you're, you're happier here because you have all of these. 
they are safe, you know. Which Some is so important, especially if you're important. bringing up children. Yes, especially for family. Yeah. Mm. And a lot of people benefit from that, I know. Yeah. Um, it seems like it's a place where families are very... Yes. ...well looked after, or like people are happy to raise families. In yes, Qatar. it's a very good place to raise a family. But for you, after the World Cup, mm. you hope you hope to go home? Of course, because I want to see my parents. They're getting old and everything. So I always hope to go back to my country. Because everyone tells me how great Lebanon I remember we used to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About how... Uh, but now it's, it's not. It's not great at all. It's bad. Everyone is suffering over there. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Lebanon? Yeah. There's no more electricity, so everyone has to depend on himself, whether getting... Uh, for example, my parents have solar systems now. Oh! So they're just depending on themselves. Yeah. And even water, for example. They have to buy water. There's no water from the uh, government, you know. You have to buy water or take the rainwater and, you know, keep it for, for everything. For daily use and stuff like that, not for drinking, of course. Yeah. And whenever my sister wants to go to work or come back to work, it's you'll be afraid because anyone might kidnap her or stop her car, take her bag, whatever. It's not safe at all. Some of my friends want to stay here forever. They don't want to go back to Lebanon at all. Even after the World Cup, at least one million migrant workers will remain in Qatar. Zayna's words explain why. Qatar can provide safety, better pay, the chance of a better, safer life. And that's exactly why people keep coming back. For some, there is little choice. So are you the only person amongst your friends who wants to leave? All of them want to stay. Because Lebanon now is so miserable, that's why. So they prefer to stay here, of course. Yeah. But still you want to go back? Yeah, that's still. Because? Everyone tells me you are crazy, you want to go back to the world. I just love my country. It's nice. And my family is there, that's why. It reminds me of something May Romanos shared with us. She's a Middle East researcher for Amnesty and has been investigating practices in Qatar since 2017. The news cycle has been dominated by male workers directly involved with the World Cup, but it is another group of migrant workers that Amnesty considered to be the most vulnerable and who capture this absolute economic need. We consider them to be the most vulnerable group of workers because not only because they are women, but also they are isolated in their employers' houses, their passports are confiscated, they have no phones. Domestic workers, cooks, nannies, who are mainly female. And I remember, like, probably these were the toughest interviews you conduct because you are truly sitting with a victim of uh, human rights abuse, of sexual abuse, of verbal abuse. And yet it's a resilient woman sitting in front of you. It's a mom. And, and despite everything, she hasn't seen her little ones. I remember Reina had like a three month uh, At the time when she left, her daughter was three months old. She's been two years in Qatar. Uh, and then wasn't, ha- hasn't been paid, so had to run away seeking support from her embassy so she can go back to her family. But then I think what, what, what was, despite everything that happened, what worried her is just like, 
now I can't buy milk to my daughter, so my daughter might be hungry. And I think that, again, brings it back to the essence of why the, why these women leave everything behind to even your kids. I don't know, leaving your newborn, your three-month-old daughter with your mom or with your husband or partner just to go and, and work abroad miles away, knowing that you, you might face difficult living and, and working conditions. You can't but admire this, I think, and and and, and realize that, um, yeah, these women, despite everything, are fighters and, and they will continue to do so for the sake of their families. Now ask yourself, why should we assume that these deep-rooted realities will change after a football tournament? There will be shows of protest on the pitch. In September, Denmark unveiled a muted black kit to honour the migrant workers who've died in Qatar. Last week, FIFA said Danish players would not be allowed to wear a training kit bearing the words, human rights for all. Harry Kane and nine other captains announced they will wear a rainbow One Love armband to send an anti-discrimination message. These are small but valuable acts of protest. But there is one thing, something more than protest, that has been called for by human rights organisations. I think workers are owed millions of dollars, millions of dollars because of exploitation. In May, Amnesty and a coalition of organisations called on Qatar and FIFA to pay this back. FIFA have $440 million in prize money set aside for this World Cup. The coalition is calling on this amount to be matched for a workers' compensation fund. Remember Joffrey, one of the former workers you heard from in episode one? He's now an investigator for Equidem, who are part of the coalition. I asked him about this. I'm confused because FIFA's motto is fair play. So I was like, is it fair play for only the, the, the organisers and the host countries? Or is it fair play for all people concerned? Because if we look at stakeholders, I think workers are the, uh, are the, the major stakeholders because they've made it happen. At the start of this month, Qatar's Labour Minister finally addressed it. He described the fund as a publicity stunt and said criticism was racist. Even under global scrutiny, there seems to be a deep unwillingness among Qatar's leadership to really change things. Remember the former security guard, Malcolm Badali? He feels particularly strongly that the reality of reform in Qatar doesn't match the impression being given to the world. It has taken Qatar 12 years to implement, not even implement, to just introduce into legislation uh, maybe five major reforms, uh, uh, exit permits, passports, uh, confiscation, um, domestic workers' law, abolishment of the kafala system, introduction of the non-discriminatory minimum wage. So 12 years, five notable reforms. And they say that they do it of their own volition, which I know is false. It's all it's because of the pressure. So what happens when all that pressure is gone? They'll have no incentive to do anything. We don't know what will happen beyond December 18th. But we do know what has happened already. Qatar still hasn't given official data on how many migrant workers have died in the country. It still hasn't properly implemented the labour reforms it so proudly heralds. And even on its flagship projects, that's not the case across the board. It set a minimum wage in 2020, but that's still $275 in a country that in 2017 had the highest GDP per capita in the world. The skyline might have changed, but there is little to suggest that this World Cup will leave any major legacy behind. 
when the 2020 reforms were announced, the Shura Council, which is the legislative body, actually tried to repeal some of those reforms. So what does that tell you? You know, so I hope to be proven wrong. And this is on record. I hope to be proven wrong. I sincerely hope to be proven wrong. But things will get um, much worse. And Qatar still hasn't relaxed its homosexuality laws. Dr. Naz feels the same foreboding. I personally worry there might be local retaliation post the World Cup. And when the cameras look the other way, we still need attention and support and help. And that's what I'm hoping to establish now before the World Cup so that we continue to have visibility. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ramble. At the start of making this series, I remember asking leading human rights activist Nick McGinn if he would watch this World Cup. I was slightly relieved when Scotland didn't qualify. Um, because, yeah, you don't really have to. <laughs> uh, and now, I don't, I, it's funny, there's, you know, I, I see a lot of people saying you should boycott watching it. Um, I, I'm not excited about it, and I feel quite... Um, I feel quite downbeat about it, just because it's the culmination of a lot of work, I think, for a lot of people doing what I do. Um, and, and there's this definite sense of disappointment um, at the things that haven't been achieved. Um, so, yeah, I feel, uh, I feel conflicted about it because I'd like to watch it and I'd like to enjoy watching it. I may still end up doing that, to be quite honest. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I certainly never felt like this before going into, a, going into a World Cup. When the decision was made in Zurich that day, it all seemed so abstract, so far away. 
But years have become months, months have become weeks, weeks have become days, and now it's finally here. And that feeling of unease has grown. Will it fade away when that first ball is kicked? Probably. Because ultimately, the business of football must begin. TV schedules will be filled with wall-to-wall games. Column inches will be crammed with all the complex plots and subplots every major tournament bristles with. The controversy that has dominated the build-up will slip down news feeds. Brazil happened. Russia happened. Qatar will happen. You know, So whether we like it or not, this thing is happening. The train has left the station. In October, it was reported that Saudi Arabia is proceeding with a bid to host the 2030 World Cup alongside Greece and Egypt. $40 million has been set aside for the bid. And in May, Saudi Arabia recruited the ultimate poster boy. Lionel Messi is the country's new tourism ambassador. And so now Messi, the second highest paid athlete in the world, has chosen to be the face of two oppressive regimes in the Middle East. Even football's gifted child, its sacrosanct once-in-a-generation talent, is a willing participant in football's constant obsession with one thing above all else. Money. FIFA now has an independent human rights advisory board. But since 2010, football and many other sports have only strengthened their ties with nation-states with poor human rights records. Whether it's China hosting the Winter Olympics or Saudi being handed Formula One races, no one is prepared to say, no, enough is enough. And for Tarek Panja, there is absolutely nothing to suggest that football will do that anytime soon. The people that would have, I guess, a say in changing any of this, uh, particularly UEFA, you don't see any, any appetite to do anything about this. In fact, you've had the UEFA president... Alexander Shefferin essentially say he doesn't see what the problem with state ownership is. His biggest customer is being Media Group, so you know that might be a reason why why he he may want to say that. Um, you have the Premier League, <laughs> which has been investigating Manchester City for rule breaking now for four years without coming out with an outcome. It just shows the kind of supine nature of of essentially these organisations that are supposed to be regulators or governing bodies in the face of powers that I think are, are too big for them. I have uh, very strong feelings. Today I feel Qatari. Uh, Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel a migrant worker. If you've stuck with us this far, you're probably wondering, as many people have asked me, where does this leave us? Caught in between, knowing all this, how do we engage with this World Cup? I don't have a ramble guide to ready to explain this for you. There is no handbook. I'm not about to tell you not to watch. I'll watch. I hope England do well. But that doesn't mean following FIFA's hope that we focus on the football. I mean, the fact that Gianni Infantino felt the need to write a letter saying that to all 32 competing nations shows a sudden real desperation that the football really might be overshadowed. The point is, people are talking about Qatar and the issues surrounding this World Cup. 
fans are talking about this. And that is a good thing. After everything you've heard in this series, you might think that just saying we need to keep talking about all this feels like a cop-out. But engaging with it and talking about it is the only way that anything improves. Questioning, being curious, asking the people that know. Because if we're silent, all that's left is Qatar's PR firms and Gianni Infantino telling us everything's okay. On a practical level, the non-negotiable for this World Cup has to be a compensation fund for workers. Let's stand up for workers. That's the best thing you could do. That's the best gift you could do. Because workers, even after working so hard, they're being now, they're being sent home in, in, in thousands because they have already completed the projects. Even just the mere courtesy of letting them see the football match is not being accorded to them. So I wouldn't see any sense of a fan being so happy if you respect the rule of law and if you respect human rights. We can take this tournament as an opportunity to have those universal conversations Dr Nasser Mohammed spoke about. Conversations that go across race, religion, class and sexuality because that rarely happens. We should be looking at um, ourselves in the West a bit closer. You've seen Qatar in the last year, thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, have developed even further relationships thanks to its um, position as a dominant global supplier of liquefied uh, natural gas. Our our reliance on this nation is there, but should it be a no-questions-asked relationship? Absolutely not. Um, And I think there's elements of some of politicians, for example, who'd prefer if the media didn't criticise so much. It's our last morning in Doha and it's a Friday. So there's one more thing to do. Every Friday morning, starting in September, hundreds of migrants from the South Asian community conduct a weekly ritual on their day of rest. So basically, as it's been described and as I've seen it, every little area that has space enough for a game of cricket, we'll have a game of cricket on, so that's what we're going to look for. Inside my passion is cricket. This is your main, your main hobby, passion. Yes. Goal, whatever you say. From the beginning, when I understand, I enjoy cricket. I know, you're still listening to a football documentary, don't worry. Like all sport in Qatar, this won't be continuing during the World Cup. Everyone here isn't paid to play, but has been helped by the clubs they play for. We speak to one team captain, an Indian guy who's been playing cricket in this league since 2006. We uh, get CVs and then, you know, when jobs here match with their skills or their profile, we bring them in. And then, of course, every year we make a chart on what is the need of the team. Most of these, uh, they come in as young men. So they, they are looking for their bachelor accommodation, etc. We support them in finding place. They, they, you know, the team itself, they, some of these boys stay together. They, so they bring in and you know, the first month or so they are supported. And of course, then once they have the job and their first salary, then they are okay, they are on the way. At the end of the day, players want jobs. They want to be independent. The club is just providing that umbrella for them to, you know. The migrants here are from a wide range of occupations. Some work in manual labour, others are in office jobs. 
We speak to one Bangladeshi man who works for a tyre company. He's watching on, third in the batting order. We help everybody, whoever uh, comes from uh, home country to here work, we support them. Whatever they need, uh, if, uh, it's, uh, we are all friends, like a family here. So you come, we uh, grow up uh, with, together, helping each other to understand what you need. So we are doing. Did it help uh, you when you arrived? Yes. Yeah. Because I was like, uh, no friend, no whatever, come here, then uh, almost uh, two, three years I was like alone. So then after I found the cricket uh, guys, so I start playing, then everything easy. Yeah, yeah. It must be hard, like, yeah, it must be hard. And yeah, first, uh, almost a half year, one year, it is very hard anybody to come a new place and understand with the new people. Yeah. So if you have, any, like, sports is the most entertaining place for people to uh, share each other's thoughts, emotion. Gloves, gloves, gloves. Exactly. And would you say you're, as a team you're, you're like close? Yeah, like I said, we are like a family. So whatever, if you have any problem with the family, you help each other. So we are also like, say, if anybody have problem with the work or whatever, we help everybody. If you, any team, ask, same all. We are almost like uh, four country people. Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Pakistan, all Asia. But uh, we all different country, different origin, different uh, religion. Still, we are helping each other. No country or uh, no religion or uh, origin, nothing matter. Just people. It sounds like something straight out of FIFA's playbook. But this had nothing to do with FIFA. This was sport as a genuine, unifying force. It felt as though we'd come full circle. I'd come away with the same feeling after watching those women play on our very first night. Man, it was it was heartwarming seeing these girls from all over playing together and being brought together in this arid place. It felt like a sense of community and they didn't seem to think that was anything to do with the World Cup coming here at all. That was just force of love for the game of football itself and their own force of personality. When I went to work in Qatar for being sports back in 2017, I went because I wanted to work in football and I wanted to go somewhere that I didn't know anything about that was five years from hosting a World Cup. I had reservations, obviously. I knew it would be very different to living in London, but I guess I didn't have the imagination to figure out what that would look like. And it was far more restrictive than I ever imagined. But now I have been able to share just a few stories with you from inside the country that I would never have been able to share before. Let's keep listening to them. Let's keep listening to the people whose lives have been so affected by this World Cup. The Qatari female footballer I met hopes to open a sports bar serving non-alcoholic drinks where women could go and watch football together. And um, my other thing is that I'm going to open, like, hopefully in the next year, uh, something like a sports bar for, to watch football, but, like, no alcohol and none of that kind of thing, because... Exactly. 
Yeah. <laughs> but like it's because like I want to go watch a football game and like it's really hard like any for example any like week in week out there's like a million different games and I always want to watch them and it's like really hard to go somewhere. So it's like other than a sports bar. So it's just that that's what I'm going to that's what I'm planning on doing. Hopefully it'll open by the summer. Emna longs to play football abroad, but she needs help. I need like uh, for my future like I need videos for me how I'm playing. Uh, Highlighting, so I put on my Instagram page. Yeah. Do you think it's fair that the guys get all the extra attention? No, it's not fair. Because like girls and guys are the same, and we play football. They play football. Is that nothing's any- different? Dr. Naz will continue to campaign throughout the World Cup, but he can only do it from afar. Everything I was entitled to as a Qatari and in Qatar to be out and be gay. Her. And to me, it was worth it, and I would still make that decision because um, I I feel myself, I feel happy, and I feel like like any other person, you know. After his experience, Malcolm Bedali set up MigrantDefenders.org with Ida, a former migrant worker in Bahrain. Currently, he's trying to fix issues closer to home in Kenya, where illegal recruitment fees are rampant. He will never be able to return to Qatar. I would want, in fact, I long to go back to Qatar, but I think that would not be wise. Uh, One, because I signed an NDA uh, that said I was not supposed to reveal anything that happened to me while in detention and during the prosecution. And what's the first thing I did when I got to Kenya? (laughs) I wrote an article about what happened. My favorite place was the library, uh, Qatar National Library. That was my place. Um, I love that place. And uh, Simaisma Beach, I, lo- I love the place, uh, you know. I've never been to the desert. I've always wanted to go to the Qatari desert, but I haven't. So we'll never know. Joffrey continues to work for Equiderm as an investigator. He has hope. As a labor rights defender, as a labor rights activist, we must always be optimistic. The world is full of critics. But there must be at least a t- one or two of us who are optimistic. Emran is back in Bangladesh. He tries to spread the plight of migrant workers now too. Now I'm feeling better uh, because I am not working for the sufferer. So in my soul, I'm uh, feeling uh, good because I would, but I have no lots of money uh, to survive uh, Bangladesh. But end of the day, it's my mental satisfaction. I'm working them because I'm also a sufferer, a returning migrant. I'm working for them. Maybe God know me, God see everything. That's my satisfaction. But I want to spread my message in all over the world, especially FIFA, ILO, and, and others who are the responsible uh, for the migrant rights worker, uh, Qatar stadium related worker or restaurant, uh, on other step uh, worker for work for FIFA, I make a voice uh, for them. I know it cannot come in one day, but sooner than later, freedom must come for workers. Thousands of miles away, whatever decision we make about watching this World Cup or not, the reality is that we're not just passive observers. The moment Set Blatter opened that envelope, that was decided. So I hope you remember all of these people. Because when this World Cup is over in a month's time, the spotlight will switch off. The fans will leave. 
Even most of the stadiums will be deconstructed. Their parts shipped out all over the world. But these people's stories will remain and continue in Qatar. Understanding them and sharing them might just hold a little glimmer of hope. We contacted the Supreme Committee for comment about LGBTQ plus fans at the World Cup and they said this. The SC is committed to delivering an inclusive and discrimination-free FIFA World Cup experience that is welcoming, safe and accessible to all participants, attendees and communities in Qatar and around the world. Everyone is welcome in Qatar, but we are a conservative country and any public display of affection, regardless of orientation, is frowned upon. We simply ask for people to respect our culture. More than 600 international and regional sporting events have been held in Qatar since we were awarded the rights to host the tournament, welcoming thousands of fans from every corner of the world. While the tournament is the biggest event yet, there has never been an issue and every event has been delivered safely. You have been listening to Inside the Qatar World Cup, presented by me, Kate Mason. The producers are Finn Ranson and Charlie Morgan. Sound design is by Tom Wally. Our executive producers are Luke Aaron Moore and John Teague. Thank you so much for listening. The Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 